so many people have gone to my YouTube videos over the years and are now going to my website, you know, and I'm very flattered about it because they want to learn things and they want to watch my coaching videos. But I thought it might be quite interesting for you to discover what I learned from. This is a series of podcasts called What I Learned From. What I learned from certain conductors, from other teachers, from other wonderful musicians. And all of the things that went together to making me the person, the musician and the trombonist that I am today. I hope you enjoy these. This for me is a very special What I Learned From. In this podcast, what I learned from Dennis Wick, the incredible presence that is Dennis Wick first entered my psyche in 1974, I think it was, sitting in my um, parents' kitchen in Bishopthorpe, just outside York, listening to Radio 2 on a Saturday morning, and the um, theme tune for a new film called Star Wars came on. I remember it to this day, I will never forget it. The most exhilarating, incredible noise. And at that moment, I decided I wanted to be principal trombone in the London Symphony Orchestra simply on that recording. Changed my life. Of course, Maurice Murphy played no small part in it as well, along with all of the other legends who many of them I went on to work with Subsequently, um, the first time I met Dennis Wick was in the final of the Shell London Symphony Orchestra Music Scholarship in 1979. Um, I should add at this point, most of you know him as the guy with his name on, on those mouthpieces. There used to be gold back in those days. I think there's a money-saving exercise there now, silver. Um, he um, was so incredibly encouraging to me. He was wonderful. And I remember in 1979, I remember uh, another brass playing legend called William Lang, Bill Lang, said to him at the reception after I'd won the competition, he said, hey, Dennis, I think this guy's going to get you your job when you retire. And Dennis said, hmm, I think you might be right. I was 15 at the time. And uh, less, than, less than 10 years later, I think eight years later, I did finish up um, following Dennis in, that, in the job. The first time I heard him playing live was in 1979, later on. And I heard the London Symphony with Claudio Abado doing Brahms IV and the Firebird in Sheffield City Hall. Not a bad concert. The end of the, uh, the, the, the Firebird... The electric excitement in his sound was absolutely incredible. And the, he radiated enthusiasm and confidence throughout the whole concert. It was absolutely incredible. Really, really cool. Um, now, what did I learn from him? Apart from all of that stuff, it was... I don't know anybody who's loved playing the trombone more than Dennis... And I know, I know, Dennis, if you listen to this, I think you'd agree with me. You actually think you left the London Symphony a bit too early, didn't you, really? I, you know, um, I, think, uh, I think he stopped playing a little bit 
too soon, if you ask me. And the infectious enthusiasm, the father of the British trombone school, you know. And if you have never heard the Walton Symphony Number no. 1 recording with the London Symphony and Andre Previn, I think it's RCA Gold Seal. If you want to hear Dennis in his pomp, I don't know when it was, 1968, 69, something like that, this recording, um, have a listen. I'm pretty sure the first movement where he's so devastating was done in one take. And I think the orchestra, if I remember rightly, from what people said to me, it was done as like a pre-recording take, just to see how the balances were. And Previn said, well, seems fine to me. Right, second movement. <laughs> We've all had that happen. It's happened a couple of times to me in my career where you're sort of just relaxing and letting go and thinking, oh, well, they'll start recording after we've done this tape. They'll throw this one away. And they don't. Um, I went on to teach with Dennis um, from 2000 and, um, at the Royal Academy of Music because when I went to the Vienna Philharmonic I didn't have time to be there every week we needed to get someone else to do it and he hadn't taught at, um, the, at, at an institution since I don't know when he actually gave his teaching at the Guildhall School of Music to Peter Gain um, sometime in the in the late 70s, I think. So he'd been out of teaching on a regular basis for you know, practically a quarter of a century. And so I had the great honor of um, working with him and discussing students with him. And he was really instrumental in opening a lot of doors in pedagogy to me. You know, I would go back to Vienna for three weeks and, and come back and the students would all, all be a lot better. <laughs> and I used to say to them, you know, what did Dennis say to you, by the way? What did he do with you in the last two or three weeks? And, uh, and they'd say, oh, nothing. He just talked to us and told us stories about when he used to play. And, of course, the students didn't realise, you know, the surreptitious teaching that was going on, getting psychologically into their minds as to how they approach the instrument and what, you know, the, the uh, fundament of, you know, basic musical integrity and articulation is. And talk about what he did in this situation and that situation and how he thought about his sound. And this conductor said this to me and I, I just picked my bell up and, and just said, okay, listen to this and, and that's how you do it because that's how we do isn't it? We just, we take a big breath and we say, look, listen to this. You know, that's a very small... Um, example but I think Dennis worked on the theory that if you can convince somebody that they're good ultimately they will be and by the way that's not as simple as it sounds just telling somebody they're good um, won't do it it's much more involved than that um, and what I found the most amazing thing about his teaching and I still haven't I wouldn't say quite, no, I'll correct that. I still have no idea how he did it. But I think Dennis, when I first joined the London Symphony Orchestra, Dennis Wick was on second trombone. He decided, um, sorry, Dennis, I'm going to say this anyway. <laughs> he, did, he Because he was so busy with the business, um, because he was very passionate about his, you know, mouthpiece and mute company, he's passionate about everything. Um, he 
didn't find the time to practice as much as he would have liked. And he thought that if he went on to second trombone, he wouldn't have to practice as much. And um, he discovered that wasn't the case. <laughs> so I, I, uh, I did some concerts with him on second trombone. Um, and so I heard him playing at his best in the 70s. Now, these days, you, everyone's got a recording out. Back then, nobody did it. There are no really good recordings of Dennis playing solos out there. And so the students who we worked with in, you know, from 2000 to, I think, maybe 2012 uh, at the academy had no idea how he sounded. He didn't play anymore, um, apart from the fact that um, he always carried a mouthpiece or two around in his pocket. Um, and uh, the phrase, I just happen to have my mouthpiece with me. <laughs> was very well known to all of his students because they only heard him pick up their trombone, put a mouthpiece in and play the world's loudest top F. I think as long as there is oxygen in Dennis Wick's lungs, he will have the best top F on the planet. Um, and that's all they would have heard him playing. It was quite in intimidating for them. I think he kept order very well. Yet, having never heard him play, I'm really not kidding you, they sounded like him just from the way that he had spoken to them, just from these stories that he used to tell them. It affected their, their sound and their articulation and, and their slide technique. And they, had, they played in the same part of the note as he did. It was absolutely extraordinary, and I really don't know how he did that. One other thing that I've learned from him, um, which I still try and work on, is he was brilliant at giving the last word before somebody went to do an audition or a concert. He would be able to read a student and know psychologically where they were, and of course, you know, technically where they were as well. And he would say to somebody, look them in the eye and say, you can do this. And they would. <laughs> He knew how to gauge the approach that a student should take before an audition or before a concert. And like I say, it's something that I work on when you say to a student, occasionally you might say to somebody, you know what, you probably don't stand a chance, you know, but hey, it's a great process for you. I'm sure you, it's a great exercise. I'm sure you're going to go there and play well. You're in a great position to do it, but you're probably not quite ready to win this. Of something of this level yet so you know get in there and have some fun um, and I'm sure I don't need to explain you the psychology behind that because it's quite successful sometimes and what you say to a student is tailor-made it's slightly different with every student there are no sort of series of quotes or sayings that you would read say okay this student needs this it's all tailor-made Everyone you, you and and it's not a trick and it's not a joke. It's it's a piece of advice that with someone with a lot of teaching experience can gauge the situation and gauge the approach that we think is a pedagogue that the student should take. And Dennis was a master of that. I learned that from him. Um, he also for somebody who is 
probably the best business person we have as trombone players. He may be the world's richest trombone player as well. I bet if you're listening to this, Dennis, that would make you smile. And good on you. But for all he's been incredibly successful in business, money, for the most part, has not been his main motivation. Uh, none of us turn it down. But he always works on the principle of have an idea, be passionate about it, and the money will follow. Do things for the right reasons. If you chase money, it's not going to happen. If you have great ideas and you really believe in them, the money as a side effect will come through. You know, that's really, from what I can see, that's, um, that's a big part of his, his makeup. Um, he was, of course, the pioneer of British trombone technique as we know it today. Um, I, think, I think he got a lot of that from... He, he got a lot of information from... Um, the great American teachers, you know, of the time. Uh, Remington, uh, maybe Arnold Jacobs. Dennis, you can maybe fill us in on this. I sh I, by the way, Dennis, if you are listening, I want to do an interview with you at some point as one of my heroes of pedagogy. Um, and so he was influenced by, by different people. When he studied, um, the level of trombone teaching um, in England was basically, you know, don't tell them too much or else they'll steal your work. So he was the first one who really developed this, some basic technique and passed it on and started the school. And I suppose in, in the note, in every note that all of us play, there's a little bit of Dennis Wick in it, you know. Um, he was really the founder of this British Sly Technique school, which I think is still really, really excellent. I think we've relaxed it a bit over the years, but he was the first one to really work on this precise slide arm and the, you know, and the crisp, clear, radiant sound. You know, really, really, really fantastic. So as you can tell, I learned um, so much from Dennis. He was always on the end of the phone for me when I was in Vienna and struggling, and. Um, he always listened and he always gave great advice because none of us find life as a trombone player easy the, the whole time. So it was incredible to have him on the end of the phone. I'm incredibly grateful to him for that. Um, and some of his advice was, you know, it's just what you needed to hear. He was fantastic. Um, one of my other heroes is a um, wine grower called Michel Lafarge. In Volney, he's 94 now, I think, something like that. And it's so, so funny. He just compared the um, 2019 vintage in, in Burgundy as being very similar to the 1927, <laughs> which he remembered tasting in his youth. Um, and no other year was the same. Now, Michel Lafarge in, uh, in Volney, there was one time there was an outbreak of this, this, this parasite that... Um, that the, the chemical companies were having a terrible job trying to deal with. And the Clos uh, de Chateau des Ducs in Volnay is right in front of Michel, Michel Lafarge's house. It's enclosed. So he just put chickens in. <laughs> and they ate the parasite. And that was the end of it. You know, sometimes, and this is Dennis's big saying, is the wheel is still round. Good on you, Dennis. 
There's nothing new. And the old simple truths are, were, and always will be simple truths. I remember calling him up saying, um, Dennis, I, I, my, my low register's gone, you know. I, I, I can't play low anymore. Everything else is fine, but I'm really struggling. I'm a bit worried, you know. And he said, well, have you, um, have you tried playing low a lot? <laughs> At which point you start feeling a bit silly. And he said, I remember that happening to me once. And, and so I, I got a bass trombone and I, I just played third trombone in a section with some friends for a while. My low register got much better. And <laughs> that's not the only piece of advice he gave, of course. But Dennis um, never lost sight of the simple truths. Students do not need to know the lexicon of information that you have as a teacher. If you tell a student exactly what they're doing wrong and why they're doing it wrong and what they need to do to fix it, that's you just trying to prove how much you know. All a student needs to know is what they need to do. And the simpler, the better. That, in the end, is probably the most important thing I learned from Dennis Wick. Thank you, Dennis. So there you go. I hope you enjoyed that. If there are any issues that you found particularly interesting, don't forget to contact me and always go to uh, ianbowsfield.com for lots more interesting stuff. Yeah.